Welcome to No Baller. My name is Chris Rawl. It is Wednesday, June 23rd. On today's show, DeAndre Ayton's game-winning alley-oop and how for most athletes, situation is nearly everything. Before we get there, we have an app. It's under the name The Beehive TV. You can find it anywhere that you can find apps. Go and download it. Go and help spread the word about that and about No Baller. Please and thank you. We will start today's show in a familiar place. Why gambling should be legal in the state of Utah. I, I follow line movements uh, a lot, and sometimes I bet as a contrarian. Uh, when the line moves a certain amount, I say, I'm just going to take that because I think there's value there. So last night, the Clippers and the Suns are playing game two of the Western Conference Finals, and people are betting on Phoenix. Heavy, 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 and it moves the line to Clippers plus five, which I end up taking even though I don't want the Clippers to win because I don't really like them as a team. So now I'm stuck in a semi-emotional hedge. I have the Clippers plus five, who again, I do not want to win outright, but I'm also hedging against if they win, then I can cash a ticket and I at least feel good about that. However, there's a small window. If Phoenix wins by one, two, three, or four points, then I get everything. I get a Suns win, I cash the ticket, and I go home a very happy man. So the game's back and forth in the fourth quarter. It ends on this DeAndre Ayton incredible alley-oop with 0.8 seconds to go. Phoenix wins by a point. Clippers plus five cashes. And finally, something good goes right in my gambling life for the first time in seemingly, I don't know, four months. And it gives me a reason why gambling should be legal in the state of Utah, because it's a reminder that every so often you can have everything that you want in life. And now a word from our sponsor, Traeger Grills. With your masquerading and you. Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill, perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. Situation is nearly everything. This is a constant theme for me when it comes to thinking about sports and talking about sports. All of these athletes uh, within the professional realm, they're very talented and gifted. And a lot of times it just boils down to situation as to whether or not they are successful. Uh, And I think that gets pushed to the side continually in discussion. So football season is approaching. Uh, My favorite sport and something that I follow with great interest. And I'm starting to get that itch. You know, we're getting to the end of June get through July and August, and we're there. Uh, And one of my favorite things about football season is monitoring this musical chairs of quarterbacks in the offseason. Who has moved where? Who is in a new situation that could benefit them or hurt them? And how are the perception of each of these quarterbacks going to change solely because they have shifted gears from one situation to another? I think the poster child for this, when it comes to my intrigue this season, is Matt Stafford going to the LA Rams. Because Matt Stafford was drafted in 2009 by the Detroit Lions and played, or has played, his entire career there up until this point. A place that you couldn't possibly create a worse situation for a quarterback to succeed. A tire fire of an organization continually just biffing itself, not drafting correctly, trading away assets, hiring incompetent coaches over and over and over. 
And we've seen Stafford's career over the course of a decade. We've, we've seen his team's win-loss total not match up with the talent that I see when I watch him. And he's kind of suffered from his situation when it comes to the perception of Matt Stafford, the quarterback, and how good he is and how talented he is. And it's been interesting to follow his career because over the course of these 12 years or so, we've seen public perception wax and wane on a lot of other quarterbacks. And when it's positive, they've superseded Matt Stafford, a guy who I find to be an incredibly talented quarterback and one that if he were in a different situation the last 10 years, we would talk about amongst the very best quarterbacks in football. Instead, we've seen a bunch of other quarterbacks be talked about in glowing terms solely because of their situation. Poster child of that for the last 10 years for me uh, has been Eli Manning, who has won two Super Bowls with the Giants and has not really been that good of a quarterback throughout the course of his career. But because he rode an incredible defensive performance in 2007, to a victory over the 2007 Patriots, who are one of the best offenses, actually up until that point, probably the best offense in the history of the NFL. Uh, and the Giants' defense holds them to 14 points in the Super Bowl. They're getting after Tom Brady all game. Truly uh, an incredible performance from that side of the ball. Eli Manning throws a wounded wobbler helicopter pass that David, David Tyree pins against his helmet. That's the most notable offensive play in the game. And our opinion of Eli Manning was, wow, this guy's incredible. He's a winner. And the Giants indeed win a Super Bowl five years later against the Patriots again in an upset. They ride a defense. They ride a solid team effort. Again, Eli Manning, not really that talented of a quarterback, but he has two Super Bowls. And so now we look at him in a much different light than we look at a player like Matt Stafford, solely because he was on a team uh, that put a defense and uh, an offensive talent around him and a coaching staff that knew what to do in these big games. And so now we think differently of Eli Manning. Uh, Nick Foles, another person who comes to mind, who has not really ever been good at playing quarterback. But when Carson Wentz was injured a few years ago with the Philadelphia Eagles, a team that had probably the best roster in football, just stacked at every position. Uh, Nick Foles was able to come in and played two games of his life in the NFC title game against the Vikings on the road and against the Patriots in the Super Bowl. And because of this situation, uh, the Eagles win a Super Bowl. And coming out of that season, we raved about Nick Foles. What an incredible player. Wow, how have we not seen how good this guy is all along? And immediately, uh, he turned back into a pumpkin. And now we make fun of Nick Foles for being a quarterback that's not very good. Uh, this is all situation-based. You know, all of these guys do have talent. And if you put them in the right place at the right time, they can make plays. Nick Foles, he was awesome. Again, in the NFC title game in the Super Bowl, he played amazing. But you have to have a situation like that around him in order to extract uh, a performance like that from someone like Nick Foles. There's so many quarterbacks, again, over the course of Stafford's career. Alex Smith is another one. Uh, a guy who got put in a great situation in San Francisco. And Kaepernick came in and took his job. And he went to Kansas City and kept Patrick Mahomes' seat warm alongside an uh, incredible play caller and Andy Reid. Bunch of talent on the offensive side of the ball. Kareem Hunt, Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, awesome offensive line. One of the best quarterbacks in football that year, the year before Patrick Mahomes takes over. And we celebrated Alex Smith rather than saying, Alex Smith's good, yeah, let, I'm not going to detract from him at all, but 
This is another reminder that if you put a professional athlete, especially at the quarterback position, into a good situation, a lot of these guys can perform because they're gifted and talented. Uh, And these same people, if you put them in in a terrible situation, like on the Washington football team, they're going to struggle to perform because Alex Smith there, uh, he, he didn't have a team blocking for him. He doesn't have a lot of talent on that side of the ball, and his performance reflected that. Jared Goff goes to the Super Bowl with the LA Rams, the team that now Matt Stafford is taking over for. And we talked about Jared Goff as one of the best quarterbacks in football that year. And now he's a pumpkin and he's going to be playing for the Lions. And it seems likely that we're not going to be talking about Jared Goff as one of the most talented quarterbacks in football anytime soon. Uh, Mitch Trubisky, another young quarterback. There were years that we thought he was kind of good simply because the Bears were making the playoffs. And as we've watched his career move forward, uh, we don't think that anymore. All situation, you know, for almost every athlete with very, very rare exceptions. I'm talking about the most transcendent of talents. You know, Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson. There's very few people that make the list who can go out onto a field with any teammates in any system and still milk out a a respectable performance for themselves and try to help their team win a game. I start thinking about the playoffs currently and last night's game, Suns Clippers game two, Um, the NBA conference finals, they're filled with players that really, really shine a light on this situation is nearly everything I do. Um, The Phoenix Suns have built a winning team this year around their starting lineup. They led the NBA in minutes together as a five-man unit. Chris Paul, Devin Booker, Mikael Bridges, Jay Crowder, DeAndre Ayton. Uh, And they've been one of the very best lineups in basketball while playing the most minutes together because... The way that this lineup has been pieced together uh, is brilliant from a management perspective. You have the great floor general and Paul who can fill all the gaps, distribute, score when necessary. You have an elite scoring talent in Booker who knows how to put the ball in the basket, who can also alleviate some of the playmaking duties for Paul when needs be. You have the ultimate 3 and D guy, Mikael Bridges, guarding the best perimeter player, can hit open threes, all that kind of stuff. Jay Crowder, similar style of player. He can bang with the bigs. He can shoot threes. He can fill in the gaps. And DeAndre Ayton, who's really come uh, to the forefront as these playoffs has gone on, is a very gifted player who can do a lot of good things in the role that Phoenix has asked him to perform. Now, we know Chris Paul has missed game one and game two of this series because of COVID protocol. And this lineup and the chemistry that's been built and this idea that Our strengths accentuate one another's strengths and we help to cover up one another's weaknesses because of the way that we've constructed our roster, because of the way that we coach with this lineup and this unit. It allows somebody like Campaign, their backup point guard, to slip into the starting lineup in place of Paul and play a fantastic game in his own right. He's not as gifted of a player as Paul, but last night he goes for 29 points and nine assists with Chris Paul out and he does a lot of things uh, that Chris Paul does. He scores, he playmakes, and he helps carry Phoenix to uh, a win. Again, campaign by no means as talented as Chris Paul. But when you build a situation like this, and you empower each player to 
do what they're good at and to try, uh, we will try and cover up what you're not as good at. It allows somebody like campaign to step in and do stuff like that. There are so many people within the conference finals in general on the Western and Eastern side where their situation has really brought the best out of them. And now the viewing public talks about them in drastically different terms than we did over the course of the last few years. I mentioned Devin Booker, who I've talked about in past shows, who from just counting stats has been pretty much the same player the last three years. Three years ago, the Suns are hot garbage. They win less than 20 games in an 82-game regular season. Uh, Empty calorie, empty stats guy. That was the knock on Booker. Last year, they make a valiant push in the bubble to come within, I believe, one game of making the play-in. Booker's awesome during that. And now the divide starts to happen. Some people still think he's a losing player who can put up big stats on a losing team. And some other people start to go, maybe there's more to it than that. This guy seems like he's got a lot of talent. Maybe you can build something that, uh, that wins with him as a foundational piece. And this year, the Suns go out and get Jay Crowder, and they get Chris Paul. And with the right coaching and with the right empowerment from a management perspective, they turn into one of the best teams in basketball. They're the two seed in the West. They're now, uh, I believe, a minus 900 favorite to make the NBA Finals this year. Um, and a lot of that ties into situation. And now we talk about Devin Booker as one of the very best up-and-coming stars in basketball, and for good reason. The dude is a phenomenal talent. We saw it as soon as the playoffs started in game one against LA. We saw it in the closeout game of that series in game six when he goes bananas. We saw it in game one of this series when he has a 40-point triple-double with Chris Paul out. Uh, The dude knows how to play basketball, and, and we've known that for years. Uh, Our perception has changed because the team is winning and because they've put a better roster in place around him. And now we're able to more appropriately savor what Devin Booker brings to the table. Uh, On the other side of the court, there are multiple players that I've watched that situation has been everything. Reggie Jackson, who has been outstanding throughout the playoffs. He was outstanding in the Dallas series. He was one of the very best players in the Jazz series, frustratingly so for uh, someone like me who wanted the Jazz to win. He's been doing it again in this series. Uh, The dude was on the scrap heap. He was left for dead. He looked like he was playing himself out of the league with Detroit, one of the very worst teams in the league, team who has now got the number one pick in the lottery last night. Uh, And he goes into a team with talent that says, hey, we want you to play in space uh, and we want you to lean into what you're good at, you know, playing in isolation and and just trying to burn these bigger defenders that get switched on to you. Now Reggie Jackson looks like one of the very best players on the court at any given time. Uh, Within his same team, Rajon Rondo, I think about his performance last year with the Lakers when he was in a similar place to Reggie Jackson. Picked off the scrap heap, left for dead. Who knows how he's going to fit in? I don't even know why the Lakers get him. And the next thing you know, he's probably their third most important player throughout the course of that playoffs. He was instrumental in the Lakers winning a championship last year. Uh, I think about the Eastern Conference, and there's a long list of players that fill this theme. Situation is nearly everything. Uh, These players have not really changed that much from a talent perspective or what they're bringing to the table. They have slightly. Uh, I think to give all these people credit, they're always trying to get better and constantly tweaking not as drastic as what our perception is of them now. Trey Young comes to mind greatly on the Eastern side, who he's 
been the poster child for the empty stats player on a bad team throughout the course of his career. He's put up great stats, you know, high 20s in points per game, hovering around 10 assists per game. But it's never really contributed to winning in a way that uh, fans want. And so instead of saying he could be really good at basketball and maybe his team just hasn't been that good around him, the knock was always that. Empty stats, empty stats. Uh, Dude who doesn't contribute to winning. The Hawks, to their credit, they put a team around him this year. uh, And Trey Young plays phenomenally. And now they're in the Eastern Conference Finals. And we're viewing him in a new light. Uh, We're saying this is one of the best point guards in basketball. What's his ceiling? He's only barely tapping into his potential. This guy is amazing as a scorer and a creator, and nobody can stay in front of him. Even these great defenders like Ben Simmons, they have no chance against Trey Young. Uh, Our perception changes because his situation has changed. P.J.A. Tucker on Milwaukee picked off the scrap heap. Looked like he was going out of the league with Houston, uh, one of the worst teams in basketball this year as soon as they traded Harden. Now he's logging huge minutes for them. He's battling Kevin Durant in last round. Uh, he's hitting corner threes at big moments. He's bringing all the things we know P.J. Tucker can bring to the table. Uh, toughness, just continual effort, uh, emotion for a team that's vital within these uh, playoff games. We're seeing it over and over. Bogdan Bogdanovich for Atlanta, who played for the Sacramento Kings, just the wasteland of basketball. Nobody knew anything about him because why would you? And he goes to Atlanta and he's been one of the revelations of the playoffs. An incredible secondary scorer and creator alongside Trey Young. Dude who just has ice in his veins in crunch time. He's banging home big threes. He's making incredible passes. Uh, our perception of him has changed greatly. Solely because he went from Sacramento, the most abysmal franchise in the NBA, to Atlanta, a team that has really grown together and now is in the conference finals. Last but not least, I want to talk about one individual who was the player of last night, DeAndre Ayton, game-winning alley-oop, and how the situation has really played a big role for him individually. I want to read a quote from Paolo Ugetti of The Ringer that will help illustrate this. Trey Young and DeAndre Ayton, on the other hand, look to be on teams well-built for the future. Atlanta has constructed an ideal roster around Young, partnering him with shooting wings and a handful of rim-running bigs. Ayton has benefited from Chris Paul's arrival and Devin Booker's leap, two developments that have allowed and forced him to thrive in his role as a finisher and defensive anchor. Their individual ceilings may not be as high as those of Doncic and Williamson, but their situations underline how important team building is to a player turning their talent into playoff runs. I don't want to discredit Ayton, a scout said, But if he was in Sacramento, he would not be like this. Aiton's leap has been a team effort. Aiton not only has one good coach in Monty Williams, but a second coach on the court in Paul. It's the ideal scenario for a young big man, and he has taken full advantage of it. He has clearly bought into what the Suns are building, even if it means playing the third, sometimes fourth fiddle, to Paul, Booker, and Mikhail Bridges, also a member of that 2018 draft class. End quote. The first thing that sticks out is the quote from this scout, which is the general rule of thumb in the NBA. It's the prism that we should always look at players through. Uh, If any player is in Sacramento, they probably wouldn't be like this. Uh, And that's fair to say. I really do think that. Because again, that's a tire fire of an organization. And they've never in the last 15 years put their players in the best position to succeed. 
And so we can watch the Kings play basketball and a lot of times go, oh man, I don't know what's going on here. These players don't seem like they're very good. And even ones that seem like they're good, maybe uh, Fox and Tyrese Halliburton right now on their team, we go, I don't know how good they are. Are they just empty calorie guys or could they contribute on a winning team? It's really hard to tell when they're playing on the Kings. And then we'll see a lot of players elsewhere either leave Sacramento or, or just not be there to begin with. And we see them be put in a situation to succeed. The 2018 draft class is mentioned uh, within that quote on the ringer. And it's a very interesting class to revisit at this point in time. Because Aiton's drafted number one overall at that time. Uh, Marvin Bagley is drafted second to Sacramento. The Mavs trade up to draft Luka Doncic at three. Jackson, Jaron Jackson Jr. is drafted at number four by Memphis. And Trey Young is drafted by the Hawks. They trade back and take him. Um, and the thing coming out of that draft after season one was, oh my God, how did everybody miss Luca? This guy is a superstar. He's going to be incredible. What He doesn't have a ceiling. And I believe that to this day. That remains true. But we're starting to see two different people be put into situations that are now maximizing their talents. DeAndre Ayton at first and Trey Young at five. And two people who we made fun of and thought were, oh man, these are busts. And I, I mean, these teams are going to regret this forever that they didn't draft Luka Doncic. Now we're starting to see what players can be within an ideal situation. Uh, DeAndre Ayton, okay. Here's Chris Paul. You're not going to find a better player to learn under. Dude who understands basketball as well as anybody has ever understood it. Uh, second coach on the court. Oh, here's Monty Williams, a great players coach who also understands what you need to be doing and how to make you better as a big man and how to piece you into this puzzle of Mikael Bridges and Devin Booker and Chris Paul and not ask you to do anything crazy. We don't need 30 and 15 every night from you. We don't need that. Uh, we need you to rim run. We need you to finish. We need you to punish smaller people in the post if they try to go small. And we need you to be the defensive anchor of this team. Uh, it's about situation. It's about role. It's about understanding what a player can do if they're put in the best possible place for both of those two things. DeAndre Ayton is really interesting to revisit right now because our perception this playoff year is changed drastically about Ayton, who, similar to Booker, has put up pretty similar counting stats over the course of his three seasons. Uh, this morning, I go back and look at uh, his actual stats. His rookie season, he averages 16 points, 10 rebounds, one block per game, 58% shooting on 30 minutes per game. His second season, last year, 18 points, 11 rebounds, 1.5 blocks per game, 54% shooting from the field, 32 and a half minutes per game. This season gravitates back to about where he was his rookie year. 14 points, 10 rebounds, one block per game, 62% from the field, 30 minutes per game. All pretty similar seasons. Give or take some percentages, give or take some points per game. In the postseason, he's averaging 16 points, 11 rebounds, 72% from the field on 35 minutes per game. Little blip up in the minutes side, a huge jump up on the field goal percentage side, and similar production on just the raw counting stats. But we're seeing him contribute to a winning team. And we're seeing him fill this role that Phoenix has asked him to fill. 
in a very, very efficient and effective manner. He goes toe-to-toe with Anthony Davis when he was there in the first series, plays admirably. Uh, He's putting up double-doubles in the first four games of that series. And Aiton was one of the revelations. Uh, I I think if you polled people who watch the NBA and who follow it, one of the big mismatches going into that series was this Lakers front line, specifically AD against Phoenix. They're going to overwhelm them. Uh, They don't really have anybody who can slow this down. And that didn't prove to be the case. A lot of that was because Aiton filled the role that Phoenix asked him to fill. And with the situation around him, he really did a, a damn good job of that. Uh, the next round, Nikola Jokic, yeah, it's going to be another mismatch. Phoenix sweeps him. Uh, some of that is because DeAndre Ayton fills the role he's asked to fill. Now we're seeing him present problems for the Clippers in a way that the Jazz couldn't present last series. Clippers try to go small, and DeAndre Ayton has punished them when they do that. He's forced them to play Zubots more, to keep a big on the floor. Uh, he's been good on defense when they go small. Moving around, closing out, and part of that is because of the situation. It's because Phoenix has good perimeter defenders in a way that the Utah Jazz did not. And so Mikel Bridges, he's not getting blown by in the same way that everybody on the Jazz perimeter was. And so DeAndre Ayton's not being put into this exact same spot that Gobert was, where he's trying to cover eight dudes at once, and he just ends up covering none of them. On the offensive side of the ball, DeAndre Ayton has a lot of offensive skill. And when you go small and he gets you in a mismatch, he has a lot of ways he can hurt you. He can hit a jumper. He can take you onto the block and bully you. Uh, he can draw a shooting foul and shoot free throws. There's a lot of things he can do. Last night, DeAndre Ayton played probably his best game of the playoffs. 24 points, 14 rebounds. That's his playoff career high on the point side. He goes 12 for 15 from the field. And he has the most memorable shot of the playoffs so far. Phoenix is down one. Jay Crowder's inbounding the ball in the corner with 0.8 seconds to go. And Phoenix runs this play where Booker tries to set a screen. He does. Aiton's now running down the key. Crowder throws the most perfect pass in the history of passes that's floating right into the rim. And DeAndre Aiton just stuffs it down. Uh, Great play on so many levels. So many people had to contribute to it. Uh, Just the, the play being drawn originally. And then the execution. The screen from Booker. The 10 out of 10 pass from Crowder. The timing that's required to have the ball floating over the cylinder. Uh, the knowledge that it's not, it can't be goaltending because it's an inbound pass, all of this stuff. And then Aiton, who is put into a situation and a role where, hey, peel off, jump, you're huge, you're athletic, stuff the ball down, and the game is over. And that's how it played out. Uh, really an incredible play, an incredible moment, and one that's tying into this rising perception of Aiton as A, a good basketball player, which he is, and B, a basketball player that contributes to winning which is true in in the current moment because of what the Suns have put around him. I want to read a couple more things. Uh, They're going to come from Royce Young of ESPN. Per Elias Sports Bureau research, this postseason, Aiton is the first player in the shot clock era since 1954-55 with a 70% or better field goal percentage in any 12-game postseason span. He has had five 20-point, 10-rebound games this postseason, the most by a Suns player since Amari Stoudemire in 2007. Then he goes on to say, Aiton might not be the foundational superstar the number one slot is reserved for. He might not spend a decade making all-star teams or winning awards, but he he is a cornerstone for the Suns. He is an example of roster building, an ideal fit in the scheme Williams has crafted to support Booker, Paul, 
and the army of shooters orbiting the perimeter. Aiden isn't trying to achieve status or to validate his draft location. He just wants to make the Phoenix Suns better. He's starting to understand having a role doesn't limit you, Williams said. Sometimes when you tell a guy this is your role, they tend to think I can't do anything else. But he just has a big role, end quote. Uh, I love all that. It touches on everything that I think about uh, when it comes to sports and that this show is about situation and role, how integral those two things are in changing what we think of a player, a player that could be the exact same from one year to the next. And simply because a team puts a better situation around him or better grasps his skill set and puts him in a, in a role that is different from the year prior, our perception changes. Uh, it, it just makes you think over the history of sports. I mean, how many players have slipped through the cracks simply because of a bad situation or a miscast role? How many Matt Staffords have just played on a Detroit Lions for their entire careers? These incredible talents and their career ends. And unless you really watched him, you would never go back and look at the win-loss record of their team or their stats and go, this was one of the very most gifted players of that era. You wouldn't do that because the situation, because of a miscast role. Uh, this 180 that's gone on with Devin Booker, it's simply tied into situation. You know, I don't think Devin Booker is that much different of a player from last year, this year. Last year, when there was a great divide between NBA fans on how much he could contribute to winning, and this year, where we're watching it play out in real time, you couldn't find an NBA fan right now that would argue against Devin Booker is incredible. And man, you could build a winning team around this guy. Uh, our perception changes simply because situation changes and simply because role changes. On the positive side of that, that's DeAndre Ayton right now. We're seeing that play out in real time as, as I've talked about. On the negative side of that, I think back to last series, uh, Clippers Jazz. And one player comes to mind, Royce O'Neal for the Jazz, who's, who's a side player. Uh, and I don't think a lot of people would pay that much attention to Royce O'Neal in general. I think Jazz fans feel pretty fondly about him for the most part going into that series because he had a clearly defined role, play defense, shoot open threes. Uh, and he did both of those admirably. And in the Clippers series, he got forced into a very uncomfortable role. He was the main lead perimeter defender against a five-out defense, and he struggled to stay in front of people. And on offense, he was miscast even worse. Uh, he was the outlet when Mitchell would get doubled. Many times he was the outlet where they'd pass to him, and he was the guy who was forced to decide what to do in a four-on-three situation, uh, a role that he is not equipped to perform in and a role that he did not perform in. And the perception of Royce Neal going out of that was disappointment, frustration from Jazz fans, which I was part of that, but 80% of me just felt bad for him because the role that he was asked to fill was not realistic for his skill set. Again, it's all about situation. It's all about role. It's just insane how much these two things affect our perceptions of individual players. Uh, last but not least, we'll end this show in a familiar place as I talk about last night's game too, which was a great basketball game and had all the intrigue that playoff games, especially the further along the playoffs go, uh, have. Uh, the razor-thin margins between winning and losing. I'm a broken record, but I am a broken record for a reason. Because down the road, we forget about all this stuff. You know, if you go five years down the road, and you look back on stuff, we'll look at stats, 
We'll look at a box score. We'll look at the final score. We'll remember an individual player too. And we'll form opinions retroactively. That if you talked about them in real time, they would look dumb as hell. And so I always like to make note of these margins. Because when a team wins or loses, it drastically swings the way that we talk about individual players or about teams or about coaches or management or go down the list of everything. And when you're paying attention to the game and it's still fresh on your mind, you just understand all of these games, for the most part, when it's really good teams, they come down to 15 plays that if one goes the other way, the other team wins. It just That's how it plays out. And we'll make these huge, grand, sweeping conclusions about an individual and whether or not they can win or lose or a team and whether or not they can win or lose. And it just boils down to these tiny things that in a different universe, they go the other team's way and we're making the exact same arguments against the opposite side. We're flip-flopping our logic. We're rearranging everything. And so I really like to make note of these things because I think it's important for how I like to process sports I usually don't go overboard in a lot of the hot take stuff that kind of dominates the sports discussion nowadays, which is this team just lost. Well, you can't win playing that style of basketball and this player, they weren't built for the moment and that kind of stuff. I, I despise those narratives for the most part. Very rarely do I believe them to be true because I watch the game and I say, well, if that three pointer went in, that team would have won. And the team that we say, you can't build that way. They'd be in the NBA finals or that player. If, this shot had just rattled in rather than out. We would be saying, this is, that's one of the most clutch shots ever. This player is so good. It's just the difference of a millimeter in, a, in the rim. There's no difference between winning and losing many times. Uh, and it can't be talked about enough. That's why I do it. That's why I'm the broken record over and over when it comes to these razor-thin margins between winning and losing in the playoffs. So last night, game two, Clippers, Suns. Uh, you just go into the final minute. You could go the whole fourth quarter, but... I don't want to take 30 more minutes, so I'll go to the final minute. We'll start with the final play of the game. If you're the Clippers, man, it's going to keep you up for a long time because there's 0.8 seconds to go, and all you have to do is defend a play that 99.9% of the time you would defend, and instead Phoenix executes, and the Clippers get out of sorts, and Zubats mistimes his jump, and he doesn't jump as high as Aiton, and so his hand is down here, and Aiton's hand is a foot higher, and he's stuffing the ball into the basket, and the Suns have won on a truly improbable inbounds play with 0.8 seconds to go. Razor-thin margin, even more so than normal. You rewind less than 20 seconds earlier. Actually, less than 10 seconds earlier, if I'm not mistaken. Paul George is at the free throw line. Paul George, who hit three enormous shots in the last two minutes of the game, um, he goes to the free throw line with the Clippers up one. And he clanks the first free throw, and he clanks the second free throw. Huge, 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 huge stuff. Uh, free throws will kind of be forgotten because they're just free throws and who really wants to remember them? It has to be uh, an enormous moment to remember stuff like this. Carl uh, Malone missing two free throws in game one of the NBA Finals against the Bulls. That's one of like the all-time ones that you'll remember. But there's every game has stuff like this. Dude misses a free throw or misses two free throws in the final seconds of game. We forget about it because we'll just remember the Andre and alley-oop. Paul George, there's two free throws there. You get one point, uh, and now it's a tie game if Phoenix scores a two-pointer. You get both, and they are forced to shoot a three. Just another razor-thin margin. Um, 
on the Clippers side of things, if they were to have pulled out that victory, Phoenix would have been sitting there going, man, there's some stuff in that last minute that'll drive us insane. Uh, the Patrick Beverly flop on Devin Booker with under a minute to go comes to mind that he gets hit kind of in his armpit and his chest and he falls down like he just got shot by an Uzi and he's down rolling around in his face and it's this is the I, I hurt so bad and then it's showing the replay and I'm going, I don't really even know if anything happened there. And it goes to review and somehow the refs determine it's a foul and it's going back the other way and it's Clippers ball. Uh, razor thin margins extend to refing so many times in basketball that it drives you insane. Drives me insane as an impartial observer. When it's your team and it's involved, you'll look at stuff like that and you go, how in the hell could you watch a play like this and make the determination that you did? And both sides can feel that way. That's the maddening part about refing. Refing, that's the maddening part about the review system, uh, which really reared its ugly head in the last couple minutes of the game last night. And it's all a piece of this razor-thin margin puzzle. There's so much stuff that goes into it. Another review in the final moments. Also under a minute to go, Devin Booker's dribbling. Beverly stabs in, jabs the ball. It looks like it's out off him. On replay, 1080p, slow it down to the last millisecond, and it looks like maybe it touches Booker's hand at the very last moment. So a play that was originally ruled to be Phoenix ball, it's now Clippers ball. It's just tiny, all of these things, over and over and over. Uh, and we make note of them in real time because they'll be forgotten. Uh, the more years go along and we look back in five years and say, oh yeah, the Clippers, they weren't clutch. Uh, oh, uh, you can't win doing that. And we'll forget a lot of this stuff. Uh, and so that's why I make note of it. And that's why I will continue to make note of it every single game. When it comes to basketball, hockey, football, it doesn't matter. Uh, it exists in every single sport. And part of the way that I like to push back against these narratives that arise that I don't necessarily think are true is by making note. Uh, in every single game, in every single series, there will always be so many plays that comprise the razor-thin margins between winning and losing. Thank you for listening to No Baller. This podcast can be found on any platform of your choosing. If you could rate and review and help spread the word, it would help me immensely. If you have additional feedback or thoughts that you want incorporated into the show, please email me at chris at thebeehive.com. Last but not least, if you would prefer to listen to this as a video, go to thebeehive.com and find No Baller.